Thanks, mate. Oh, good to be with you. How you all doing? You all good? Man, you're still a good-looking church. Well done, mate. You've maintained the good looks in this place. It's awesome. Yeah, white chocolate's still the best chocolate, too. Everyone say amen. No? Okay. We won't go there. Very good. Hey, uh, well, it's so cool to be able to share with you guys again. Uh, it has been, uh, been a little while, um, and uh, we have had a pretty full-on year. Um, and so it's my pleasure this morning to be able to talk to you um, with a bit more certainty uh, of what we are going to be doing and uh, what's happening for our family at the beginning of March next year. So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Ruth and I have been a part of this church for 22, 23 years. And uh, so we have been children's pastors here and associate pastors and senior pastors. And uh, on the 3rd of March this year, we handed over the church to the Amazing Glenn and Debbie Fraser uh, to take it on and uh, upward. And they've been doing a good job, eh? They're a great couple. Great couple. Yeah, come on. Give them a yee-haw. Give them a yee-haw. I look at Glenn sometimes and I just go, I know what you're going through and I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> so seriously though. Continue to encourage these guys. Continue to encourage when you're at the spearhead of a church. Um, there's a lot that comes your way. So just uh, continue to encourage them. Christmas is coming up. Send them a Christmas card. Tell them they're amazing. Just take that opportunity, at least uh, somewhere in this uh, next couple of months, just to encourage these guys and the great job that they're doing. For us this year, it has been a massive change. We've sold our uh, house that we spent pretty much 10 years trying to get sorted, and then we sold it once we did get it sorted. Uh, and then uh, I handed over the church on the Sunday. On the Monday, I jumped straight into study from 8 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock, got home, studied some more, had tea, studied some more. And, um, and about three weeks ago, I walked out of the room and said, Hi, darling, I'm your husband. And uh, she was uh, greatly relieved to see me, but then I jumped back into doing a, a few more things for MAF. We've just been up this week doing what's called transition training, so cross-cultural training, and, uh, and met uh, many of the MAF team that we will be going out onto the field with, which has been really exciting, uh, and some really helpful stuff that we have uh, learnt in this past week as well. Uh, and uh, I, I got handed this letter this morning. It's got the Civil Aviation Authority on it. Um, and so it went to Janet's mailbox. Uh, there's one of two things that's going to be in here. It's either going to be something telling me that I've broken airspace and I'm in big trouble, or hopefully it has been uh, something that we've been working towards all year. So I thought it would be a good, uh, a good thing to open and to share with you all. This could go really bad. <laughs> this is a statement of faith and another statement for another 360 bucks. What did you give it to me for? <laughs> oh, there we go. There it is. $70,000 on my hand there. Very good. So, um, yeah, so as we've been, as I've been doing the training this year, we've also been on the process with MAF. Um, and so we have been, we have been checked over. 
We've had our references checked, we've had our brains checked, we've had our bodies checked. Uh, we've had just about everything checked that can be checked. Um, uh, last, sorry, not last week, but uh, I've lost track. But somewhere in the last um, three weeks, shortly after I finished my commercial license, I flew up to Auckland, <clears throat> spent a whole day doing what is called a GPSS aptitude test. Uh, prior to that, I had an hour and a half interview with a Dutch psychologist who still, he decided, even in the Netherlands, I'm still sane. Okay, So as official, I'm sane in New Zealand and I'm, a, and I'm sane in the Netherlands. Um, and uh, the thing with this course was that I, I took what was called an initial, ab initio version of it about 12 months ago. And I didn't do that flash at it. Uh, in fact, I didn't do very well at it at all. Um, and so this has been at the back of my brain all year, is how am I going to go with this? Because, you know, it's a deal breaker. Um, and uh, so I did the course, spent uh, eight hours doing this course, and uh, then got the results two days later, and it gave me the second highest that you could get on that test. So I was like, thank you, Jesus. So I don't know how he played around with the computer system, but God managed to pull off a miracle there as well. So, yeah, so that was um, that was pretty exciting. The next day, Ruth flew up. Uh, we did what were called behavioural event interviews, and uh, and then we had a formal interview as well. Ruth had a spouse interview. Seven o'clock at night, we uh, were about to head off to the airport. They called us back in the room and they said, "We just want you to know that uh, we will be recommending to MAF New Zealand that they accept you guys, um, and uh, and we believe you'll be a huge asset to MAF." So we were like, "Yes!" So that was uh, that was really exciting. So I've got one more uh, one more test to do for them, but um, that uh, God keeps telling me it's just a formality. So having uh, having questioned them all year, I'm going to believe them on that one. So it has been for us a, 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 an intense and, and quite a stressful year as well. Um, as you know, shifting house a couple of times and doing all those sorts of things, and uh, and uh, just whittling away the finances. Uh, very quickly. So, uh, yeah, it has been an interesting year for us. Um, and the question has come to me a number of times of, of why are you doing this? And that's a question I've asked myself many times this year. Uh, and I, I, uh, I, I explained it this way to someone. Um, I said, you know, there, there, are, there are three hallways that I feel that I could go down. Um, and uh, and the first one was um, staying as a senior pastor of Thrive Church and uh, being involved with the exciting things that uh, are happening in the New Life Church across the nation as well. And uh, and that would have been great. I know that uh, hassle-free tours and the work I was doing there, they would have opened up a full-time role for me at the at the click of a finger. Um, and then there was this other hallway, and that was MAF. And these other two hallways were open to me. I could walk down them. This other hallway, MAF, they wanted us but weren't sure if we had the goods as well and we needed to prove ourselves at that. And this is this is really what um, helped us uh, to decide where, what we were to be doing as, as God spoke to us. And the only hallway that I could hear God calling us was down this one. And so that's why we've uh, taken the journey that we have. Um, and of course, it, it hasn't been an easy journey. I mean, just handing over the church. Um, and, you know, we, we, uh, we loved what we were doing. 
um, here with you guys. But that was the hallway. This is the hallway that God has been calling us down in. He's been incredibly, incredibly faithful through this year. Um, I mean, I, I, before I leave uh, next year, I'm, I'm speaking again. I want to share more about that journey. Uh, but today, I want to talk to you about a really exciting relationship that is about to uh, be strengthened and forged between Thrive Church and Mission Aviation Fellowship. Uh, so we will be going out, uh, I will be working as a pilot with Mission Aviation Fellowship. We will be based in Arnhem Land, which is in northern Australia. Um, and uh, this isn't just us going on a journey, but this is the whole of Thrive Church going on a journey with us. You guys are going to be front seat with us. We need you guys to be front seat with us. We can't do this alone. Uh, and we're really excited about what this is going to mean for you and what it's going to mean for us. Uh, as we go on this journey together. So today, I want to I help you to be a part of the journey, to start on that journey. And to, first of all, to understand uh, what uh, MAF is all about. So anybody tell me anything about MAF? They don't pay well. <laughs> yep, remote. They work in remote places. Yeah, good one. You get to fly a plane, yeah. How many people do you think, uh, give me a, okay, for every person in the ear, every pilot, how many uh, other people do you think there are? A hundred, yeah. There's, there's, um, there's six people to every one person who gets to, who, who flies a plane. So, so there's a diverse there's diverse roles across MAF. There are uh, accountants, uh, which is what um, the Van Burkle family, um, Nick, uh, was involved with when they were with MAF. Um, and uh, there's engineers. There's all manner of support crew. So I'm just one of the glory boys. I just like the glory job. Uh, but uh, there are all sorts of roles uh, involved in MAF. Yep. What else? How many airstrips do they service? 2,500. How many different airplanes, how many airplanes do they have in the world? 120. So it's all on the banner out there, actually. <laughs> That's where you got the 120 from. Yeah. And how many countries are they, are they operating in? Yes, you got it. Yeah, somewhere between 25 and 32. Uh, there's probably about 25 they're actively working in, and then there's 30 two countries that are involved with MAF. It fluctuates a little bit. Um, New Zealand is an MAF country, but we don't have an MAF mission. So there's a base here, but to, it, there are no planes flowing here uh, in New Zealand. So, uh, yeah, so MAF operate in some of the most remote places of the world. And they bring hope and they bring life. They transport medical supplies. They uh, transport pastors, missionaries. They help people get from one place to the other. Uh, up in Arnhem Land, where we will be operating for six months of the year, you cannot use the roads. For the other six months of the year, you don't want to use the roads. And, uh, and so we will be uh, transporting goods to areas that would otherwise be isolated. Um, up in Papua New Guinea, they, they are the sole medivac. Uh, if you get uh, bitten by a snake or something up there, MAF will be your lifeline. Let me share a couple of stories with you um, of, uh, of times that MAF have come to the rescue. When life was at stake for a beautiful mother of three, Oba Fusaban, dying from a death at a bite in Mogulu, you might be able to say that better than me, in, P in Papua New Guinea, 
An MAF plane became her ambulance, saving her life. She's in a remote place. There was no other hope. The MAF plane got her out to where she got the life-saving medicine she needed. We all remember the Boxing Day tsunamis that, uh, that hit Indonesia. Uh, MAF deployed rapidly, and in the first seven weeks, they flew more than 1,100 flights, transporting more than 160 tonnes of food and helped set up a communication system for 45 different organisations. We all know what it's like to go through a natural disaster, don't we? And, uh, and to receive the help of other people, or MAF, when there are natural disasters, um, are very good at deploying and helping, even though that's outside of their normal operations. Uh, in the midst of civil war in South Sudan, which has led to the death of over 2 million, 2 million people and displaced over 4 million people, MAF have provided a vital link to just the basic supplies of life in the midst of war-torn places where you know, we wouldn't want to go. Um, with the Ebola crisis at the moment, MAF are involved there, risking risk, uh, pilots and staff out there risking their lives because of that humanitarian call and that belief of God that in these times we are the ones to go. In Arnhem Land, where we will be uh, serving, they've faithfully served since 1973. Uh, flying basic supplies, people, medical supplies. And the only way you can be in Arnhem Land is by permit. Uh, the only way the gospel has been able to enter and remain has been through their faithfulness and their conduct. And MAF are, are well respected up in Arnhem Land. Um, and so they've been able to open up an authentic gospel. One of the things, you know, what we did last week, MAF are known for actually taking seriously the culture that they are going into. And, and we, we all know, well, probably many of us are aware of history, how um, another culture has come in and just trashed uh, the, and walked all over the indigenous culture. And so, uh, so up in Arnhem Land, apparently they're, they're quite forgiving to MAF people as well because they understand that MAF people are putting the effort in. Um, there's one story about uh, a family, and when they first arrived there, they uh, were walking down this road to go to the beach. And this is a sacred road, so uh, only Aboriginal people are allowed to travel on this road under, under certain circumstances. And so this, uh, so this Aboriginal guy uh, saw them there, and he took them to task about it. He said, you know, what are you doing going down this road? You can't, this is a sacred road. And, and they just like, Look, we're so sorry. We have just arrived we didn't understand that, um, and uh, yeah, we've just come here to work with MAF. And apparently the Aboriginal guy was like, MAF? Oh, you can go down this road any time. <laughs> but that is something that has been built up over the years uh, that, through their trust and through their faithfulness. Um, so, yeah. So this is what I want to uh, kind of help with today, is that as a church, this is what you're about, the, this connection is about to be strengthened that you guys are all going to be a part of these amazing stories and, you know, happening and taking place of lives being changed. We ourselves are And enlarged. being transformed. We grow and we benefit um, as we come and uh, connect in. You know, for tens of thousands of people, seeing a doctor, receiving help or having adequate food and clean water only happens when the plane arrives. It seems so foreign to us, but that is reality for, for many people. And MAF are that lifeline um, in so many situations. 
So I want to talk about Arnhem Land and uh, just help you to understand a little bit of Arnhem Land and some of the issues that we'll be facing up there, um, which are going to require a, a lot of prayer and support as well. But before I do that, how many people know anything about Arnhem Land? The Aboriginal people are incredibly resourceful people uh, and, and incredibly skilled and intelligent people, very intelligent. You know, there's five different Aboriginal dialects. Um, and a frustration comes about uh, between white people and Aboriginals of, of uh, them not understanding the English language. Yet they've got five languages of their own that they're working with. And most of them, uh, well, they could, but most of them could um, speak all five of those uh, different dialects depending on where they were going and what, uh, what people group of the Aboriginal people as a whole they were meeting with. These guys had trade that was set up with the Macassans who used to um, sail down from Sulawesi. And the, the Macassans, they used to sail down on the northwest winds, sail down, they would trade with the Aboriginal people, and then as the winds changed, and they would change to a southwest wind as part of the seasons, then they would sail back. And so the Aboriginal people spent a, a large part of their year actually preparing for when the Macassans came down, and they would, uh, they would trade goods. Uh, so the uh, Aboriginal people, uh, they would um, trade uh, pearls. And uh, they would trade. There was a special uh, sea slug as well that they would harvest, and then that sea slug um, went back with the Macassans and made its way through to China. Um, the Macassans would bring down to them things like knives and axes and rice, um, and they actually they they did bring alcohol down as well. Uh, so there were, uh, there was this incredible trade. Then the Aboriginal people had their trade lines set up through Australia, and so they would uh, simply pass things on to the neighbouring tribe who would pass it on to the neighbouring tribe and it would make its way all the way through Australia. So they were a, 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 a people group who understood interdependence as well. And so these amazing things were taking place um, before white people even turned up. Uh, the other thing that they would also do is they would prepare um, turtle shells um, as well and they would be traded. So when the uh, Macassans would um, set off again, the Aboriginal people would busy themselves and they would start seeding the oysters and they knew how to, how to run the oyster beds to ensure that there were pearls for the next season when the Macassans came down and that, uh, that kept things going. So we think we've got these amazing international trade agreements and things like that. They were doing it all, all thousands of years ago uh, and making it work and, and making it happen. Um, they, had a, they have a complex clan system. Uh, and the reason they have this complex clan system is that they have found that it prevents interbreeding between the clans. And so it, uh, it continues to keep the, um, uh, the uh, lines strong. Um, so we, we can't uh, marry cousins and things like that. These guys were doing it long ago. Had that figured out long ago. And they were green before green was even invented and people made a lot of money out of being green. So they knew that the land needed to be rested and that's part of the reason why they were nomadic people. So they would go and they would use this land and they would hunt on this bit of land and they would uh, take the plants and things that they needed and then they would move on and they would, uh, they would spend time on another part of land, allow that other land to rest and then they'd go back to it. So you're an incredibly intelligent people group here who had set up things that uh, would just boggle the minds of anthropologists. 
But unfortunately, uh, when the white, or they would call them the Balanda, arrived, um, these, these people came on their land and just did not respect the land. The Macassans, when they would come down, they would go no further than the beach. So they would do all their trade on the beach, they would spend their time on the beach, and then they would sail again. They respected that uh, treading on to sacred ground was not something uh, that should happen. Um, but yet, a uh, white man came in and just built their houses and, and did uh, what they felt like. And so what took place for the aboriginals was just this uh, rapid, rapid uh, degradation of their society. So the pastoral landowners would come in and they, uh, they just took over land. Um, and what that meant was that uh, for an Aboriginal, and their understanding was that that clan's land was theirs, this was theirs. If the animals wandered onto your land, then you could take those animals. If the animals were on, wandered onto someone else's, another clan's land, that was their land. That, that, they were their animals then, and that was their understanding. Well, now the, the Aboriginals, they find that they've got these wonderful big things called cattle and sheep that are wandering onto the land. So they would take. They would take it. And so, of course, this created great strife and led uh, to many Aboriginal people just being shot. And uh, the other thing that those pastoral uh, wars did, then there were two, uh, two major ones, was that the pastoral lands cut right through their supply lines. And so the Aboriginal peoples came to understand they were no longer able to cross onto that land and uh, their means of trade was shut down between the Aboriginal people. Then the Macassans coming down to trade with them as well, they would always make a stop near Darwin. And so, they would, so the, the Macassans came down one year and they were prevented. They were not allowed to stop at Darwin. So the Aboriginal people are all standing there. They've got all their goods ready to trade. And the Macassans never turned up because they've been prevented. So you've got, uh, you've got their society and their links and their trade agreements just walked across, split up. Um, and, uh, and then the crocodile hunters came through, and the crocodile hunters were even more brutal than the uh, pastoral run holders. Um, and, uh, you know, there was big money in crocodile, and they'd just shoot anything they got in their way. So you had a, you had a people group who were absolutely decimated, absolutely decimated. And the, um, the herd of that still runs deep today. Um, then there became the Self-Determination Act in the 70s, and this was, in some ways, uh, the government trying to, trying to start to do something to help Aboriginal people. But it was white men coming in and imposing their set of values on top of another culture and just walking over their culture again. And what this actually led to was, um, was a system that was set up that absolutely humiliated the elders of tribes. And, and this is, you've got to understand with these people, that they're a shame-honor-based culture. For a Western culture, we are a right-wrong culture. But for most cultures in the world, they are a shame or honor culture. And so when you shame the elders, you take away their hope. You take away their, their dignity. And this was only in the 70s that this took place. Um, and so the outworking of this has, uh, has been to a people that have given up in many ways, um, where there are high suicide rates, where there is increased violence, alcoholism, and many, 
We're not just saying a few. Many die in their 40s because their hope has just been crushed. Uh, One of the books I've been reading, um, uh, he states this, Most Australians know little of the reality and of the long destructive history that the Yongle have suffered, a history that leaves once great warriors of Arnhem Land, not dreaming of a brighter future, but thinking only of a nightmarish past. This week we visited a marae in uh, Auckland and, and spent most of the day uh, at a marae. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful occasion. If you've never visited a, mar- a marae um, and sat and spoken with uh, uh, Māori uh, elders, then can I, can I encourage you to do that? Uh, because it's something that you'll really grow uh, by doing. One of the things that stood out to me was how much progress New Zealand has made in terms of our relationships um, between the indigenous people of New Zealand. I'm I'm excited about what we have done, uh, but there's still still a long way to go. Um, But yeah, there's some really exciting things that are happening across the nation and uh, some of the wrongs being put right. And uh, and just for me, again, this week, just understanding where the Māori people came from in terms of their culture. Um, And we can so easily just think, well, you know, We've got it sorted. We, we know what's best. We know what's best health-wise, education-wise, and all those sorts of things. But, you know, we don't. We don't. In Europe, in um, Western culture, you know what, and you, you know my heart on, on this, that I'm, I'm a family man. I always talk about Thrive as being a family. Um, but in terms of family relationships, man, those cultures have got something we, we need. We can learn from uh, in an incredible way, um, and, as do the Aboriginal people. But I'm excited about the things that have uh, that we are seeing happen in New Zealand, and I'm excited about being a part. And it may just be a small part of a process that's taking place with the Aboriginal people as well. Um, I don't know how big we're going to uh, be of an influence. I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't even know how long we're going to be there. But I know that God is asking us to go and be a part of something that's really special that he's doing. Um, and, uh, and coming from New Zealand, I think uh, we've got some, some cool things that we can carry with us. So the question then comes to us, well, why go out with MAF? Um, and uh, and let, let me give you three, three answers to that. Number one is I just love the practical nature of them. Um, and if you've, you've observed my life in any way, um, you'll know that I'm, I'm a man who loves ministry. I love ministering. But I also just like the practical stuff of life as well. So if you kind of look at the history that I've been through, um, I was a children's pastor, but I was still running adventure camps and throwing people off the side of cliffs attached to rocks, of course, and getting in caving and all that sort of stuff. When I was an associate pastor... I was a part-time associate pastor, and in the middle of the night, I'd go around and I'd chuck the press at people's houses. You know, I'd just get out and do something practical. When I was a senior pastor, I still had to be doing four-wheel drive tours and something like that. And it's just the way that God's wired me. Uh, I love ministry. I love the practical. And for me, and just I suppose I realized this in the last couple of weeks, I'm excited about math because there's the ministry and there's the practical just working together. Um, so powerfully. Uh, Ruth and I, you know, we were born for adventure. 
it's just, that's just us. We're quite happy to rough it. Like a nice hotel, but we're happy to rough it as well. And um, it's, that's how God created us. So that's the, that's the number one, just the practical side of it. Um, why, why Arnhem? You know my heart for Cambodia and, and other nations around the world. Why, why Arnhem? Well, this is, this is what God has spoken to, to me about. And, and, and I want to preface that by saying, spoken to me um, about. I just, uh, Mark, uh, sorry, Luke 10, uh, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes in and talks about the story of the, great, uh, of the Good Samaritan. And, and my take on that is, what he's saying to him is, Look, you know, your neighbor is a person that you come along who is close to you and who is in need. Uh, and so God has been speaking to me about this. If, if someone was to ask you, what is your neighboring country? What is the first country you're going to say? This is going to be Australia, isn't it? Whether we like to say it or not, it's going to be Australia. And, and so God's just been speaking to me is that there is a people in your neighboring country who are in need. And he wants us to go and to uh, do what we can uh, to bring hope to that people group. And then the other thing for us is that Ruth and I, we have looked to be an example um, with the way that we live our lives. Paul said, follow, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and we've tried to do that. I, I, I know we, we haven't done a flash job of that all the time. Uh, but that is our heart's desire, is to, to set an example for, for other uh, people and, and just how to live life. And whether that be going off and having an amazing uh, three months touring America, or whether that be just sacrificing and, and going without in order that someone else. We've tried to give a, a rounder picture. Be careful in America, guys. You make life-changing decisions. God speaks to you over there. But you have a blast. <clears throat> you know, um, New Zealand has a proud history of sending out missionaries, punching above its weight. Uh, but in recent years, that number has, has petered off quite significantly. And I was speaking to the facilitators of the course we've just been on. Now, this wasn't a math course. This was um, a course, and normally they would have people from all different agencies coming on that were going out on the missions field. And she said this is one of the things that, um, that she has had a lot of people say to her, in, uh, and especially pastors, um, is that our mission is here. Our mission is here. Um, and I've had, I've had uh, a number of pastors around my age say that uh, to me as well. Um, and uh, and I, I absolutely agree with that to a point. Our mission is here. And I would even say that 90% of our effort should be focused on the place that God has placed us. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Um, 
But we've also got to remember that the Bible says a lot of other things as well. Um, and, uh, and going and feeding the poor and clothing the naked, what part of that have we maybe lost? <clears throat> Mark 16 verse 15, go into all the world and preach the good news. Um, we've, we've, got, we've got a major mission here. I've devoted 22, 23 years of my life to it. Um, but we've also, we are a part of a people who are called to have a global worldview and be a part of what is taking place in the globe. And as we do that, we grow and other people are blessed and grow as well. And uh, it's one of the things I love about the heart of this church, and of course the heart of Glenn Debbie, the heart of Peter and Lynn, um, is that we are a church that is not insular, but we're a church that lo- looks out at our community and looks out at the globe as well. And, uh, and so we're excited to be uh, stepping out into that global, international um, side of things as well. And then the, this is the other thing I think is really important for us to remember, and I love the scripture, Hebrews 10 verse 39. Yeah, we've got a big job here in New Zealand. Absolutely. But the Bible also says we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. The gospel that we have is a gospel of an increasing kingdom. It's not a gospel of retreat and entrench. It's a gospel of continuing to take out the hope and the nature of Christ, to transform Rangiora, to transform North Canterbury, New Zealand, and the globe. And, and it's important that in some way we embrace all of that. It's essential for us in maintaining a Christian worldview. I'm just, I'm just about to wrap up. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say too is for, for Ruth and I, in some ways in this church, we've, we've, we've kind of been the firsts. Um, so amongst our, our peers, we're the first to get married. We were the first to have children. We kind of made all the mistakes so everyone else could learn uh, behind us. And, uh, but this is something that I'm, I'm really excited, is that we, we will be the first missionaries, from my understanding, the first missionaries to be sent out by Thrive. Um, uh, we, uh, we've got Julie, um, who we adopted again. She was a part of Thrive. She went out. We adopted her. But we'll be the first to be sent out officially by Thrive. And, and this, is what, this is what I believe, and God's been speaking to me about in this past week as well, is that there are going to be others that will follow. As we step out, there are going to be a number of others. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was actually in quick succession. But there's going to be a number of other people that are going to step out there into the mission field as well. Um, so you guys, you're about to be a part of something that is so special to God's heart. Uh, and we, we need your support. We need your prayers. We need your support. We can't do this without you. Um, I hope, you know, in time that there will be a picture of us on the wall and that each week we're a part of the service, but we're also a part of just you guys remembering that we're out there and you're journeying with us. So I want to I wanna sh- talk just very briefly as I close on, on real practicals. For us, we've got two months to raise um, an annual support for us. Our release to field target is $33,000 that we need to raise per year. 
Now that is, uh, it's about 40% of what it actually costs for us to be on the field. Um, so, you know, they fly us back every two years. For our family alone, that's like ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 to come back to New Zealand. Um, and there's all those associated costs as well. Rent up there is astronomical price because of the mines that are up there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so... But we're, we're fortunate to be released to the field. We only have to raise $33,000. But Ruth and I, we've set this target, and this is what we feel to go after from God. We've set a target of $50,000 a year. Um, and the reason that we want to do that is because the more that we can raise and support, the less that MAF have to draw away from really important uh, tasks, such as uh, replenishment of aeroplanes and uh, um, mission work and the outreaches and all that sort of stuff. So we've got th that's what we've felt in our heart to, uh, to go after. In terms of other costs for us, you know, we've pretty much emptied our bank account to get where we are. Um, but we've still got another 10000 we need to spend on flight standardization once we get over there. And we're also going to need to purchase a really reliable vehicle as well. So there's some practical kind of things uh, that you might want to help with as well. So here's what I want to say. As, as Ruth and I, we want to invite each one of you to be a part of the journey. And uh, we'd, we'd love to sit with those who are willing, who are interested, and we'd love to buy you a coffee. We'd love to buy you a coffee and we'd love to just share with you a little bit more of the journey so that you feel a part of it. And at the end of that, you may, you may feel like, no, this is, this is not something we feel to support. Or you may be like, yeah, 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 let's do that. And that's okay because the Bible says let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. And I know in times in our life, our no's had to be a no. But I also know there's many times where a yes has been a yes. And so uh, we'd love you to, um, to just consider that um, as well. You know, I, the last thing I like doing is getting up and, uh, and asking for money in any way, shape, or form. As Glenn talked about this morning, he feels nervous every time he goes to the offer. I used to feel nervous about it. Because it's something that's kind of like, you know, you can go this far, but don't come in here to the wallet. Um, and so this isn't, uh, this isn't the easy part for me. But here's the thing. I believe in this course. And I believe uh, that as, um, if you uh, become a part of it, you will be enriched as well. And that you will be able to journey with us. And together we'll make a difference. Um, we're going to keep uh, regular updates just over the next couple of months. Uh, they're going to keep regular updates in the church of how, how we're going with our target. Because we want this to be something we all celebrate together. You know, it's just not us getting into the field, it's you guys helping uh, to get us to the field as well. If you've got friends who you're like, man, I reckon that really, this would be something they'd like to be a part of, then, then speak to us, let us know. Um, and uh, yeah, so out the back, out the back, there is our first ever newsletter which is there. So please grab a copy of that. Take it home and, uh, and read, read through that. There is a, a magazine that you can grab, Flying for Life, Dallas Patton on the front there. Amazing young lady we've just spent the week with. She's also going out to serve in Papua New Guinea. Great story, great read. So feel free to take any of that stuff that's on the table out the back there. But there's also uh, a supporters list as well. And if, you would, if you'd like a cup of coffee, 
if we can have a cup of coffee together and talk some more, then, uh, then just pop your details on there. Um, we'll probably ask you even if you don't put your name on there, but just make it a bit easier on us uh, so that we don't, uh, yeah. And, and please don't avoid us for the next few months as well, okay? Please don't do that. We've, we've only got, we've got three months with you guys and we want them to be special, okay? So please don't avoid us. Um, so anyway, that's out the back. Look, before I hand it back to, um, to, to Glenn, uh, just to close off, uh, one last video. Um, it's got some amazing talent in this video, but I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. MAF operate over 130 different aircraft. In over 25 different countries using over 3,000 different airstrips, bringing hope and life to remote communities. So we're going. We're moving our family to Arnhem Land to serve the Aboriginal Yongle people. For six months of the year, their roads are impassable. For the other six months of the year, their roads are arduous. As a pilot, I'll be providing a vital link to medical supplies, to supplies and to hope. We believe in this vital word. Lifeline. Cause. So much there. We sold our big house. Dad had his head stuck in lots of books, doing exams and even pulling us on courses. And he spent $90,000. But to get on the field... We need your help. This is mission and aid work, so we need to raise financial support for our family. We're inviting you to partner with us to travel with us. Your weekly or monthly support will help me to sit in this seat and for you to travel along with us and being a part of this journey through our regular newsletters, quick videos and personal notes. We'd love to have you on our journey with us. We can't do it without you.